Hey, it's good to see everybody this evening. Go ahead and turn to Psalms 12, if you don't mind. That's where we'll start out at, be our main focus. And uh, we'll be there for a little bit, and then we'll probably do some turning here in a little bit. But Psalms 12, great place in the Bible. Amen. Now, now this is not a bad trip at all. It's not too far. We stopped in Dyersburg. We left fairly early. I got a good buddy in Dyersburg, and man, they've got a barbecue bologna sandwich there. <laughs> Whoo, it's good. <laughs> man, I'm not even a big bologna fan, but I am of that. Well, I'm not, it's really good. I heard about a lady the other day. She asked her husband, she said, um, why don't you yawn while I'm talking to you? And he said, I'm not yawning. I was trying to say something. <laughs> That's awful. I'm already in trouble probably. But anyway, Psalms 12 tonight. <laughs> I like to have a good time anyway. Psalms 12. Psalms 12. Got a lot. Got quite a bit of material this evening, and I hope it'll be a help to you. Um, on the King James, and I'm glad. It's always a blessing to get to come with people that are of like faith, like belief. We all believe in the same book. We believe there's no errors in it. If you don't believe that, you don't believe like me anyway. <laughs> so, so, and I'm pretty sure you don't believe like that guy there either. <laughs> and so we believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. And you know, the subject is really a divisive subject. You get talking to folks and you get in town or talk to somebody you work with that goes to a different church. It's pretty divisive. And it's amazing how many people do not believe the King James Bible is God's Word. And I, I, it's just too bad, but... Uh, King James churches are hated, and King James preachers are hated. And I'm certain, even though I'm not, don't know people around here, I'm certain there's people that hate Brother James in the community somewhere, in some churches, simply for his stand because he believes in the King James Bible. Well, down there at Unity, all they do is use the King James Bible. That's true. And God's doing a mighty work down at Unity, too. <laughs> Amen. And he's doing the right thing by doing that. And so thank God for it. When I first um, started our Bible Institute our through our church, we started it together in 2005, and I had a guy take interest in me, and he was a multimillionaire. And I mean, we didn't have anything. We just started, and we didn't have anything. And I still don't take a salary from that even to this day because that's not why we do it. We do it to help preachers and help train men and women and, and that sort of thing. And so we keep the cost less expensive by doing it that way. And my church takes care of me really well, probably much better than I deserve anyway. But anyway, this guy took interest in me and he wrote me a letter and he was an elderly guy and had all these millions. And he said, I want to give your institute a million dollars. I see what God's doing down there. And he said, you'll be over it. He said, the condition is you're over it. And he said, you can spend it any way you want to. He said, I mean, basically, as a blank check. Do you want to keep part of it? Keep part of it. Do you want to use it? Whatever. He said, the only thing is, he said, I want you, he said, I think you make too big of an emphasis on the King James. And he said, if you'll lighten that emphasis and not make such an emphasis on the King James, he said, I want to send you a million dollars. He was serious. And he had a lot more than a million. And so you know, I just wrote him back. And I said, what a blessing that is for you to, uh, be such a nice person and take interest in me like you did, and I appreciate all that. But I said, I'm sorry, you must, you're going to keep your money. I said, I can't take it. I said, I'm not lightening my emphasis on the King James. I said, I'm going to dig in deeper. And I said, I'm not for sale. I don't know who you think I am. But I said, in case you change your mind, just keep it. I don't want it. I'm not taking it. We're staying with the King. I always thought, 
Maybe I shouldn't have gone that strong. I don't know, but that's what I told him. No, he's not. Amen. And a church, and a church got it that's not King James. Amen. And a whole bunch more. That's right. But we both probably know some people that would have taken it, I think. Yeah. Amen. But we're not that way. We're not for sale. We didn't get in the ministry to sell out. We got in the, I, I mean, God called us to do something. That's what we've got to do. I've got to, I've got to answer to God for what I teach and what I preach. And that's a bigger deal than a million dollars to me any day of the week. And so we still, we struggle to make ends meet and we do whatever. But God's always taking care of us. We don't have any problems, really. God's been good to us. But look in Psalms 12 tonight. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm serious about the King James Bible. I mean, that's a deal breaker for me. I'm not, I don't even fellowship with people that don't believe the King James Bible. That's how strong it is for me. And that doesn't mean I wouldn't be friendly to them because I am. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to be mean to them because I'm not. I'm just saying I'm not, they're not preaching for me. I can tell you that right now. It's not, that's not happening. Psalms 12, verse number 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them for this, from this generation forever. Now notice, he talks about preserving the words of the Lord, preservation. And divine preservation is just as important as divine inspiration. The last time I was here, I'd, I'd re- I wrote down some lesson plans. Just Brother James had told me what he, how long he wanted me to be here and stuff. And so I put down what I felt like the Lord might want me to give while I was here. And I talked about inspiration and how God breathed on everything. And God inspired this book and these words. But I also believe in preservation. And if God inspired these words, but yet not preserved these words, why in the world would he have even inspired them to begin with? What good would that have done had, they, had Moses written down and David written down and Paul written down these things, and then we don't have them anymore? Why would God go through all that trouble if he wasn't going to keep his words? But the truth is, I just believe God is going to keep his words. I believe he does keep his words, and I believe he'll continue to keep his words. And so tonight, let's talk about preservation. And just kind of in introduction, notice the words are preserved. The Bible's very clear on that. The words are preserved. And notice the first thing, notice the extent of preservation, and it's simply the words. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Notice it's the words that are preserved, not the context. The actual words are preserved, the actual words. The Bible says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. People say, well, as long as you don't change the context, if you take words out or add words, you're changing the context. The context is made up of words. What I say is leave it alone is what I say. Don't mess with it. The words of the Lord, the extent of the preservation is, I believe that every single word in the Bible is preserved by God. That's what I believe. And secondly, notice the agent of preservation. The words of the who? Lord. Who's preserving them? The Lord is. Man couldn't do that. Man is. Notice uh, verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. And thou shalt preserve them. Who? Thou. The Lord. It's the Lord that's keeping them. It's the Lord that's preserving them. The Almighty is doing that. Um, I've had people say, well, I just don't believe those King James translators were inspired. I don't either. I could agree with them on that. But I do believe that God has divinely preserved this book. 
You say, is this book inspired? Well, if it's the, if it's the preserved word, it had to be the inspired word too. So of course it's inspired. I mean, he's preserved the inspired thing is what he's done so that we can have it here today and have a copy of it. But I don't believe the King James translators were inspired. I believe it was the Almighty God that kept these words. I believe God made sure that the words were given to us just like we have them today. And I'm thankful for that. Notice something else. The third thing, the period of preservation. Verse 7, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation. For how long? My Bible says forever. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Not till we get a newer translation. Not until the seminary comes in. That's right. Not until we get those kind of things. You know, everybody's always like that. Not until we get a more up-to-date translation. <laughs> Everybody says, well, we'll get an up-to-date translation. That won't help you any at all anyway. That's not going to help you at all. Not even until the Bible was completed. He didn't say, well, we're back here in Psalms. And when I get through with John the Revelator and he closes it with Revelation, up until the end, I'll preserve them. That's not what he said. He said forever. I often ask this question. I can be a smart aleck sometimes, but I'm not to you. I often ask people, what part of forever do you not understand? <laughs> he said forever. He says everlasting life. You think that's temporary life or everlasting? <laughs> I think it's everlasting, just like he said. And I believe forever means forever. One time he said, forever, O Lord, will I, uh, uh, my words are settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord. His words are settled up there. He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away in Matthew. Uh, Voltaire was a French infidel in Geneva, Switzerland. And Voltaire was known to be a genius and very smart. And he said that 12 ignorant fishermen started Christianity. And it would only take one brilliant man such as himself to overthrow the whole thing. I read a Billy Sunday sermon one time, and he said Voltaire... A hundred years after he died, Voltaire said, or Billy Sunday said, they used Voltaire's house in Geneva, Switzerland as a Bible warehouse. <laughs> I was like, now that's humorous, you know what? This guy's going to overthrow Christianity. He dies when they use his house to store Bibles in. Okay, God, he's something else, honey. See, I believe in preservation. If I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't believe a lot of things, but I believe in it. I'm thankful for it. Take your Bible and go back to the book of Job, just to the left, chapter 19. There's a great chapter over here with some great things that said. I'll give you my personal opinion. It doesn't count for a whole lot. But my personal opinion, I believe Job's the oldest book in the Bible. I believe Genesis happened first. Understand that? But I realize the guy that wrote Genesis didn't live in the time of Genesis. His name was Moses. And so Moses wrote that later after Genesis was completed, the, the acts or the actual historical events. Moses came along and God used him to write Genesis. And Job, most people believe Job lived in the time of the patriarchs. I mean, somewhere after Abraham or up to Joseph, somewhere during that time period. I don't know when to be exact, but it does appear that he's not under the law when you read the book of Job. And anyway, some people have Job as late, as early, or as long ago as 1500 or more B.C. And of course, Genesis 1500 B.C. on most people's account. But the reason I say that is, is because of something that Job said. Job was over here and he was talking. And he's answering one of his wonderful friends, Bildad. 
And these guys were always so kind to him and calling himself righteous. And I mean, they were kicking him while he's down. He, he buried 10 kids in one day. That's pretty tough as far as I'm concerned. Lost everything he had, lost his health. Even his wife said, why don't you curse God and die? I mean, his own wife turned against him. And he buried 10 kids in one day. I couldn't imagine what Job had gone through. But it says in Job chapter number 19 and verse number 23, he says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. You know what happened? Job got his prayer answered. Because when he said that, that was not written in a book. And not only was it answered, it was answered forever, just like he said. It got put in a book, and it's there forever. I guess what I'm saying is, you couldn't get rid of what Job said if your life depended on it. It's not going anywhere. It's forever settled in heaven, the Bible says. And I like verse 25. You say, what's it got to do with anything? Nothing. I just want to read it. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and, he, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. I like that, don't you? That's good stuff right there. Job got answered maybe the first written book in the bible if that's true and if it's not it makes no difference it's still old amen and job prayer answered one time john wesley who was a methodist said i'm not a methodist i'm a baptist i'm baptist born baptist bred and i die i'll be baptist dead as they'll say i'm a baptist i don't mind anybody knowing i'm a baptist but i do believe that john wesley was a saved man i read his testimony i've read his salvation experience we're just a little bit different um, he's Methodist, like the old saying is. That's, that's, there's not a lot difference between us and those old-time Methodists, except for the bridge. If they'll come under, we'll come over. Amen? <laughs> that's the difference. John Wesley said this. He said, I built on no authority, ancient or modern, but Scripture. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land on that happy shore. God himself hath condescended to teach the way. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me that book of God. I believe we have that book. I believe it's a King James authorized version of 1611. I believe we've got it. George Washington, the first president the United States ever had, said it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. I'll just say tonight, I believe I know which God he spoke of and which Bible. And it's the same one that we're serving and worshiping right here. I believe it's the same one. You may have heard this poem before. I have it written down, but it's really good. It's, it's, it's pretty famous. It's been around a long time. It says, Last eve I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring with vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw old hammers on the floor worn with the beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, I asked, to wear out all these hammers so? Just one, he said, and then with twinkling eyes, the anvil wears out the hammers, you know. And so thought I, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows is heard, the hammers are gone and the anvil is unharmed. See, that's what they're doing with our Bible. They're trying to chip away and beat it, but they can't do anything to it. It's still unharmed because it's the word of God. Now, I'll just say there's something about this book and I want to say tonight, this book's not like any other book. I'm going to show you some crazy stuff here after a while. And maybe you've seen some of it, maybe you hadn't. But this book's not like any other book. If you would, take your Bible and go to Isaiah 53. I'll show you one case. We could show dozens of cases. 
not because I'm smart, it's because there's no book like this book, that's how come, Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53 is one of the great chapters in the Old Testament, and no doubt it's about the suffering of our Savior as the, the things that he had to go through in order for us to be saved. And I believe it was, it was not just dying on the cross at Calvary, but it was all the suffering from the, from the, the uh, whipping with the scourge and the cat of nine tails and the crown of thorns, all that all the way to the cross. The Lord was humiliated and suffered for me and you. And ultimately, he became the sacrifice, the Passover lamb that died on the cross and shed his innocent blood for our sins. And Isaiah 53 speaks about some of those events. And we know it's talking about him because it says in verse number Four, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I'm not going to read verse 7 and 8, but it's quoted in Isaiah, or Isaiah Acts chapter 8 by Philip, an Ethiopian eunuch, as they read it. And the Bible says that, that Philip began at the same scripture, talking about this scripture in Isaiah, and preached unto him Jesus. Then if Philip could preach Jesus from that scripture, we can preach Jesus from that scripture. He says in verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Notice his past tense too. It's like it's already happened. He was, he was slain from the foundations of the world, the scripture says. But he was wounded for our transgressions. There was holes in his hands and his feet. I saw a Jehovah Witness, they had, a, they had him on a torture stake. They don't believe he died on the cross. And one picture, they sent me a book one time and left it on my door. And they had him tied with ropes around that thing. I thought, he's not coming back with rope burns. He's coming back with scars in his hands and his back. That's, that's just crazy to do something like that. And it's scary that even people would say something such as that. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Look at this. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, that's when they whipped him. That's the scourging that Pilate did to him. And with his stripes, we are healed. That's what our Savior did for us. What a wonderful thing. But notice when it says he was bruised for our iniquities. I mean, they slapped him in the face, punched him, did all kinds of terrible things to him that he didn't deserve. I was driving down the road one day, and there was a liberal Baptist church, and I was out in the hills of Arkansas, and I was going to another revival meeting or something, and we was going down the road, and they were right on the highway, and they had a big church sign, and they had that verse, but it says he was crushed, for our iniquities are crushed for our sins. I thought, that's not right. He wasn't crushed. Do you realize had he been crushed that the scripture would be a lie? You say, how do you know that? Look in John chapter 19. John chapter 19. That's what happens when you get one of these new Bibles. What happens is you get errors. Your cross references get messed up. And not only that, they start changing words, and when you start changing words, you can get errors in the Bible. The best thing to do is leave it the way God wants it. It's not our job to tamper with His Word. It's our job to read His Word and to study His Word and to live by His Word. That's our, and to believe His Word. John chapter 19, verse 31. This is immediately what crossed my mind when I saw this, saw that that day. It says, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. For that Sabbath day was an high day. 
besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record and his record is true and he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. What scripture? A bone of him shall not be broken. You say, where does it say that? Well, like in Exodus 12, 46 and Psalms 34, 20, when it talks about the Passover lamb. Let me just say something. Had he been crushed, his bones would have been broken. He was beaten more than any man I believe ever could have been beaten. And I believe he took more punishment than anybody in the world's ever taken, especially when God laid the sins of the world on him. It's terrible what he went through. His visage was marred more than any man. He was almost not recognizable as a man. It was terrible. But yet there wasn't a bone broken. You know why there wasn't? Because God said there wouldn't be. Because you couldn't break a bone in the Passover lamb. But if you crushed him like the NIV and the ESV, ESV is the extra stupid version. Amen. That's right. If you crushed him, then you got a problem. What I'm saying is this book's not like other books. It's not like them. God's got this thing laid out where there's no scripture that contradicts any other scripture. But when you start meddling in it and man starts putting his dirty hands on it and changing things, then you got a big problem. And that's what man wants to do. That's what he wants to do. Now the devil, he doesn't want us to believe that God's words are preserved. Man, he doesn't want you to believe that. He doesn't mind people having new Bibles. I mean, even in a new Bible, you can show somebody how to be saved. And I don't believe a person's not going to heaven because they, they don't believe in the King James Bible the way we do. I believe they got to have a relationship with Christ. I don't personally, I'm not one of those. However, I do believe the King James Bible is God's word without error. And the devil does not want you to know that it's preserved. He wants you doubting all the time. He wants you worried. As a matter of fact, let me show you what his little game is. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And grab that. We're going to get two places. And I'd like for you to get Psalms 91 to go with it. Matthew chapter 4 and Psalms 91. We're going to check the, the cross-reference here. And we'll look at Matthew 4 first. Now you probably know about Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 talks about the temptation of Christ. It's a great passage in Scripture. You say, well, how'd he do? He did really well. <laughs> he passed with flying colors, I'd say. Matthew chapter 4. And the Bible says in verse 2, it says, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And I say, amen. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. You know what just happened? The devil came to the Lord, and the Lord said, Hold on, devil, it is written. And he gave him scripture. So the devil comes back, and he says, Well, listen here, Lord, it is written. He's quoting scripture right back at him. 
Now, I have to say this. He's messing with somebody he shouldn't be messing with. He handles me a lot of the times. The devil does. But he can't handle my Savior. He has no business handling him. He can't handle him. It's been proven. It's a proven fact he can't handle him. But what it tells me is the devil knows the Bible really well. I mean, if you're going to, if you're really going to quote scripture to the guy that wrote the Bible, you say, the, Jesus didn't write the Bible. I believe in the Trinity. I don't know about you. I believe there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I believe there's three parts, and I believe they're all one and one and three and all that kind of business. Three parts to God. And he says this. Look what he says, for it is written, verse 6, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Let me ask you a question. Is that what it really said? Well, let's go back to Psalms 91 where he quoted and just see how the devil made out on his scripture. As a matter of fact, he did pretty good, but he left seven words out. Psalms 91, 11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee. Look at this. To keep thee in all thy ways. wonder why I didn't say that part. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. That's how the devil works right there. You know what Charles Spurgeon said one time? He said, the approved method of the present carnival of unbelief is not to reject the Bible altogether, but to raise doubts as to portions of it. That's how he works right there. Oh, that's the Bible, but you can't believe everything in there. Matter of fact, these verses aren't in the best and oldest manuscripts. I can just hear a preacher or a Bible professor getting up there. That just makes my blood boil when they say that. You know, these weren't in, these weren't in the oldest manuscripts. Well, you big liar. Why don't you sit down and let a real preacher get up there that believes the book? I mean, that just drives me crazy. That verse shouldn't be in the Bible, you know. Or that word, it's mistranslated. A better translation would read on that word. You know what they're doing? They're making themselves the final authority. What they're saying is, you don't know what parts aren't there, but I've been to cemetery, I mean seminary. <laughs> I'm dead, I mean <laughs> seminary. And I've been to seminary, and even though I'm a six-foot popsicle, I skating up and down the aisles, I mean, it's cold as it can be in here. I mean... Uh, here I am, just as dead as could be, but here I am, and I know Greek and Hebrew, and you don't, since you don't, I'll tell you what it says. I say, no thanks. The Spirit of God can help me, sir. He's the one that wrote the book, and he can help me. I believe in that. Matter of fact, the natural man receiveth not the things of God, but the spiritual man, he can get something out of the Bible. So well, I just don't understand the Bible. Well, if you get saved, the Lord will help you a whole lot with that. <laughs> help you a whole lot with it. And I don't understand everything about it either, but I understand a lot more than I used to. And I know the Spirit of God is my teacher and my guide. And boy, he can help me when nobody else can. See, Satan knows this book. He knows it really well. But he likes to just get parts of it out. Now, let me tell you something else. The Bible said over there in Psalms 12, if you remember, it said the words were purified. Purified. And so not just preserved, but purified. And I believe it's been purified in languages, in languages. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That number seven in the Bible is the number for completion and the number for perfection. It's a wonderful number. And when you think about languages, when this Bible was originally written, even if you're 
somebody that doesn't believe like we do, they would agree with this, what I'm about to tell you. That Old Testament, do you know what language it was written in originally? Anybody know? Hebrew. That's right. It's Hebrew. It's not, no, no trick questions here. It's Hebrew. Everybody universally agrees with that. They believe that Moses wrote in Hebrew, all these people. And Hebrew was the language God chose for the Old Testament to be written in. Except for Daniel chapter 2 verse 4 to Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. You say, what happened over there? Everybody agrees that portion of the Bible was written in Aramaic. I mean, if you talk a Bible believer or a non-Bible believer, they all agree with that. I've read, I bet I've read 20 commentaries on it. I mean, they all say, yep, that part was written in Aramaic. That's two languages God used. But then you get in the New Testament, he didn't use either of those languages. Everybody universally agrees that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. That's right. There's no, nobody disagrees with that. As a matter of fact, we found old portions of Greek manuscripts and pieces of papyrus that actually back up to King James that are older than the so-called best and <laughs> oldest manuscripts, you know, and, and they've got them labored, labeled papyrus P number one, P number two, and all the way down, and they've got portions of that, and they're in Greek and all this kind of stuff, and nobody disagrees with that. But then early in the first century, they had something called Syriac. And the old Peshitta Bible, which is in the lineage of the King James, is put out in about 150 A.D. And it's the same lineage of, of manuscripts your King James would come from. The Lord allowed that to be used. And then it wasn't just a little bit later, and the language was Latin. And so everybody, all these old manuscripts were in Latin. They had something called the Old Latin. Now that's not Jerome's Latin. His is not too good in some places. Way before Jerome's Latin Vulgate, Latin Vulgate. And so they had that. And for several hundred years, it was Latin. And so it goes on down the line. What's that, five? Then there's a guy named Martin Luther came on the scene. And Martin Luther was a guy that basically was, you know, he's part of the Catholic Church, but he got saved. I don't agree with him ever doctrinally on a lot of things, but I do believe, I've read, I do believe the guy got saved. And he had some guts, too. I like that about him. Man, he nailed that thesis to the door. So he did have some guts, and he got born again. His favorite scripture was in Romans chapter 4, uh, over there, but to him that believeth not, you know, all that stuff, he believed in justification by faith. He loved the book of Romans. I thought, well, that's good. I, think, I believe he's saved. And God used him, I really believe, in putting the Bible in the German language. And, and I mean, his German Bible, the Old Testament stuff, very close to what we have. But then there came a seventh language, English. There's seven major languages the Bible has been in. And so I'm thankful for that. Um, that means God has put his word in languages other than he Hebrew and Greek. I'm glad it's that way. Did you know that English is the worldwide language today? As a matter of fact, over 1.5 billion people speak English. I went to Israel, and I, I was a little bit worried about it, because I thought, we're going to Germany, we got a layover, then we got to catch another flight, and then we go to Tel Aviv, and I thought, when we get to Germany, how am I going to know to get to my next flight? I don't know German. You'll never believe it. I bet you will. Some of you have been overseas. Looked up, is in German in a sign, and right beside it. English. That's pretty amazing. I get in Tel Aviv, Hebrew, English. 
go to the Philippines, preach for Brother Nono last year, the tent meeting he had over there, fly over there to Japan for a layover. Japanese, I guess that's what it was, some crazy scribbling. And then English, <laughs> I knew what that was. Then we flew into Manila. The Filipino had their English, man. Everywhere I've been, go down to Mexico, go in the airport, English. Everywhere I go, it's like you say, why? If a person is bilingual, means I know at least two languages, always, almost always the second one, if it's not the first one, is English. Did you know in the nation of Israel, everybody speaks English? Even though that's, they speak Hebrew and stuff too? Because every child has to learn English in school, every one of them. They have to, it's a must. Because you've got to know English. Not only that, did you know over 90% of every foreign missionary that's ever gone out in the last, let's say, since 15 or 1600 A.D. has come from an English-speaking country? How many missionaries do you think America sends out compared to other countries? The majority. And thank God England sent some missionaries over here that got fed up with their government. They had, a, they had Pelosi and them running things over there. Her great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, her name was Jezebel. Somebody say amen. <laughs> anyway, you didn't know that, did you? I'm just telling you what it is. And I mean, they was running things over there in England. I said, we got to get out of here. We got a king, can't even remember his name. I mean, we're in a bad shape. We gotta, we're crossing the ocean. We're out of here is what we're about to do. And man, they left out. He wouldn't even take questions from the press or nothing. I mean, they couldn't live over there in that mess. Wouldn't take their guns and tax them and raise their um, camel food up. I mean, do you know how much it costs for a camel to go a mile and the camel food price they had is awful. So, I mean, they had horses and camels and buggies and stuff like that back then. But anyway, <laughs> you can't do that. But anyway, I mean, they cut it off. You know, they had a pipeline for camel food and horse food. And they cut the thing off and they raised the tax. <laughs> it's awful, wasn't it? But anyway, I'm glad they came over here, aren't you, and started America. Thank God for it. We'd have a funny accent. I, lo I think English is the best language in the world. And honestly, it's really in its purest form with a southern accent. That's just how I feel about it. When you get Yankee-fied talking through your nose, you're just like, they didn't get that all out of you folks, did they? <laughs> Come on down here, we'll teach you how to talk. Everybody say, y'all. That's right. Now we know we're in the right place. All right, in English, let's talk about English for just a minute. Nine Bibles were translated into English before the King James Bible. I'm going to give you some history. This is important history, too. Nine Bibles were translated in English before the King James came out. See what time it is. I think I'm still okay for a minute. So I need to give you some of this. And I might break it off here in a minute. I've got two things, and this all goes together, so I could cut it off here in a minute, take a break, and we'll, it'd be about the same amount of time. Does that be okay? That's what we'll try to do. Okay. First, we've got the Wycliffe Bible. John Wycliffe lived from 1320 to 1384. John Wycliffe was a great man in history, but there's a problem. He translated his Bible not from Greek and Hebrew. He translated it from Latin. And so anyway, even though he did that, that's okay. He, the New Testament was completed in 1380. The Old Testament in 1382. took a little longer to do the Old Testament. It's longer. And that's the first Bible that has ever in history been translated into English. And he was called the morning star of the Reformation. Wycliffe was. 
and the first man to do so. As a matter of fact, it was the only English Bible in the world for 143 years. That's a long time. He was hated and condemned to death by Rome. They wanted him dead because he translated the Bible. But before they could burn him at the stake, he died of a stroke. They, I mean, they're going to burn him at the stake. That's what they did back in those days. Here's the eulogy accorded to him by the Catholic Church. They said that he was that organ of the devil, enemy of the church, author of confusion to the common people, idol of heretics, image of hypocrites, a storehouse of lies. Really nice of them, wasn't it? <laughs> Wycliffe, he trained young preachers. They called them lollards, and the word lollard means a babbler. That's what they call old-time Baptists today. A bunch of babblers up there yelling and sweating and, you know, and all that kind of stuff and preaching hard. They, they wouldn't like that. But, man, he had these young preachers he's training. They were spreading the gospel. Every one of these preachers, none of, actually none of these preachers had their own copy of the Bible because the printing press hadn't been invented yet. So they had to take his Bible and hand copy it. And it took each of them 10 months to hand copy their own Bible. 10 months. Most people don't even read a Bible every day. And these guys took 10 months of their life to have a Bible where they could preach out of it. They took these young preachers and they burned them at the stake and they chained and tied their Bibles around their neck when they burned them. Isn't that something? That's amazing. These people killed a lot of Christians. 44 years after Wycliffe's death, his bones were exhumed by the Catholic Church and they burned them. Ruthless. 44 years after he died, they digged him up and burned his bones. And his ashes were scattered into the river Swift. They thought they'd rid the world of the Wycliffe and the English Bible. But the river Swift flows into the river Avon. The Avon flows into the Severn. And the Severn into the Bristol Channel. The Bristol Channel flows into the oceans. And the oceans flow around the world. And so does the influence of John Wycliffe. There's no end. They couldn't get rid of it. You can't get rid of God's Word. You can try, but it won't work. Because God's behind this thing. You know that guy Gamaliel in the book of Acts, about chapter 5? The guy was a lost man and he was a Jew, but he did give some good advice. They were after the, the disciples there. He said, leave them alone. He said, if it's not of God, it'll fizzle out. But he said, if it is of God, he said, you can't do anything. You'd be fighting against God. He was right in what he said, even though he's a lost man. That's true. You can't go against this Bible. It won't work. You'd be fighting against God. The second one was the Tavner Bible, T-A-V-E-N-E-R. Richard Tavner. It was completed in 1539. Now, there's actually one before this, but I'm giving you three that they didn't use. They didn't use the Wycliffe in their, the King James didn't, when they were getting, preparing things. They didn't use the Tavner Bible. He put it out, but really, um, he made some slight changes to the notes and text of the Matthews Bible, but the great Bible eclipsed it so fast and so quickly that it just never did take off, so it, nobody used it. Then thirdly, you got the Douay Reims Bible. That's the first Roman Catholic Bible put out in English. It, the New Testament came out in 1582. Now they stalled a little bit on the Old Testament, and they didn't get the Old Testament out until 16 or New Testament rather, the Old Testament till 1609 to 1610. They were trying to beat the King James, and it came out in two volumes. First Roman Catholic Bible translated from the Alexandrian manuscripts. Remember something about Alexandria? Y'all remember that? They were bad. They wouldn't use that. Now, note something else happened during this time. 
In the 1400s, there's a guy, about 1400, there's a guy named Johann Gutenberg that was born. And Gutenberg's so important in history. I mean, he's, people may not realize how important he is, but he's, he's a major person in history. Because before Gutenberg, you didn't really have a printing press. And he invented the, the movable-style printing press in 1450. And did you know what he did with that? He printed a book in 1454, the Gutenberg Bible. Did you know the Gutenberg Bible, a Bible, is the first book that's ever been printed in history? That's amazing, isn't it? I believe that God used that man, and I believe the printing press was used for the proliferation of the Word of God, where God could get it spread out. They didn't have to copy it for 10 months anymore. Man, they could just print them one after another, after another, after another, after another. That's the way it's got to be. And boy, God used that. Matter of fact, there 200 of those were printed, only 40 exist today. And the printing press, really, there's no doubt, uh, over the next 150 years after that was done, it was there for a reason. So then the guy shows up, and here's the first Bible that they used. The King James Translators, they looked at these previous Bibles. It is called the Tyndale Bible. I bet you heard of William Tyndale before. God's outlaw. I mean, he was something else. That was a man right there. And he lived from 1494 to 1536. He's the very first man to ever translate the Bible from Greek to English. He translated from Greek to English. And he did that. And anyway, one time he was debating a Catholic priest, a bishop. And he, Tyndale said, If God be my helper ere many years, I shall cause the boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. That's pretty good. He said, a boy that's standing behind the plow, he said, if God gives me time and allows me, I'm going to print a Bible. And he said, he'll know more about the Bible than you do, buddy. I mean, that's good. <laughs> that's what he told that Catholic priest. And he probably wouldn't have to know a whole lot to know more. <laughs> Tyndale was something else now. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff I'm not going to give you all of it. But anyway, for sake of time. But did you know that they got after Tyndale and they wanted to kill him because he translated the Bible? And so he's printing Bibles. He became the outlaw of God, had a price on his head. And for 11 years, he lived as a fugitive. And he went through Europe running from these people trying to kill him. And the whole time, he was translating the scriptures, preaching the word of God, and winning souls for Christ. All while running for his life. He spoke eight languages fluently. As a matter of fact, he'd go into Europe and these different places and they'd come looking for him. And back then, they didn't have your picture up at the post office or a Facebook profile. Nobody knew what anybody looked like. They'd, even the old style Polaroids were invented by them. And so they didn't know. They just had a description. And they began to look for him and they went over there to the Spaniard camp. And when they went in the Spaniard camp, he could fit in so well because he could speak Spanish so fluently. They interviewed Tyndale and he spoke to them in Spanish and they thought he was one of them. Then he went on and moved to the French camp and did the same thing. Then the Italian camp. Wherever he went, man, he just blended in and he could speak the language because he was so smart. Did you know, too, he was translating the Bible. And the Roman Catholic Church, they started buying up his Bibles because he was translating the Bible and they were smuggling them back into England in uh, sacks of flour and things like that, you know, and wheat and stuff. And they had to smuggle them in. That's crazy, isn't it? And they were smuggling them in. And the Roman Catholic Church was buying them. And man, Tyndale didn't know what he was going to do because they was buying them and burning them. And he told his friend, he said, oh, they're, they're burning my Bibles. He said, we're going to sell the rest of them to, to them too. 
And he said, what do you mean sell the rest of them to them? They'll just burn those too. They said, yeah, but let's sell them to them because they're paying such a high price that for every Bible they buy, we can print three more. And the Roman Catholic Church was financing the entire operation. I mean, man, that's good. I just read that stuff. I was like, man, that is great. God, is, I think he's got a sense of humor sometimes. So anyway, the first printed English New Testament in the world was printed by Tyndale and is printed on a printing press of the descendants of Gutenberg and his partner on the same press that they built. I believe God had that press for that reason. Only two of his original printings are still known to exist because they burned them all. So you can't really get them, but there's some later printings, of course. In 1535, Eventually, Tyndale was betrayed by a friend, and he was arrested. He was jailed for the final 500 days of his life in the dungeon of Filford Castle in Belgium. During his imprisonment, he continued his translating efforts. He translated Joshua through Second Chronicles, so he did translate part of the Old Testament, not all of it. He won the jailer, his household, and many guards to the Lord. It was said by those people... If William Tyndale's not a Christian, then there's no such thing as a Christian on the face of the earth. That's what the jailer and the guard said about him. He must have had a great testimony. What a great testimony. His conditions were terrible, though, in that dungeon cell. For 500 days, he had no chair, no bed, no blanket. All he had was a heap of vermin-infested straw on a mud floor that was provided for his comfort. For the final 500 days, comfort. And then he was executed October the 6th, 1536. He was tied to the stake, and he was strangled and burned. And he's famous for saying a prayer. Everybody in attendance heard it. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Lord, open his eyes. He did. God answered that prayer. In spite of all that opposition, 50,000 Tyndale New Testaments made their way across England and into Europe. And he, one was even found in King Henry VIII's bedroom. I thought that was pretty good. He, and no, that Tyndale really is the principal translator of the King James Bible New Testament. So I thought there's a whole bunch of them. I'll talk about them in a little bit. And I'll tell you why. But his work was so good that 90% of it they kept and they didn't change. That's how good it was. That first one that came out, it was so good that 90% of what you read in the King James Bible, New Testament, not Old, New Testament, because that's what he did, is exactly the work of William Tyndale. That's amazing to me. That's amazing. That was a smart man. Oh, so, so we got the Tyndale Bible. Secondly, you got the Coverdale Bible. Miles Coverdale, good friend of Tyndale in 1535. He got his Old Testament manuscript. He completed the Old Testament with Tyndale's New Testament, had a complete Bible. And then the Matthews Bible was the third one. A guy named Thomas Matthews as a pseudonym for a good buddy of Tyndale's named John Rogers. He didn't use his real name. You say, how come? Because they was going to burn him at the stake if he did. I probably wouldn't have used mine either. <laughs> I'd come up with something. I'd, I don't know. No, I'm not even going to say what I was going to say. But anyway, <laughs> but it wasn't that. <laughs> it was somebody I didn't like, not somebody I do like. Amen. But I don't even dislike anybody that bad for them to be burned at stake. But let me just say that, that Matthew, Thomas Matthew, man, he, he put that Bible out in 1537, which was John Rogers. And he got all the Tyndale's unpublished Old Testament too and everything. And he worked on all that and put it out. 
And they took him out of his supper table where he was eating supper with his family, his wife and nine children. And she had one children, that, uh, one child that she was, um, hadn't given birth to yet. She was almost about to. And while he was in prison, she gave birth to the 10th child. And he spent time in that prison and they was going to burn him at the stake and they asked him if he would recant. They said, if you'll recant, we won't burn you. He said, I will not. I will not. And they took him in the morning that he was going to be um, burned at the stake. They had to come and they said they had to shake him hard to wake him up because he was sleeping so soundly. That's pretty, that's a man right there. And he had to walk that way all the way to the, to the place where they was going to burn him. And there was his wife and ten children, the youngest one on her bosom there holding it. He'd never seen before. And there he saw him for the last time. He walked to the stake and he was singing psalms as he went. And they said he, they tied his hands and arms by his side. And as the flames come up, he washed his hands like it was in cold water as he was being burned. Just like that right there with a smile on his face. I'm telling you, we don't even, people say, well, I just don't have time to read my Bible every day. Do you realize people died in order for us to have a Bible? I'm talking about burned at the stake. They didn't do anything wrong. All they did was something right. The fourth one is the Great Bible. It, put, it was put out in 1539 by a guy named Cromwell. It's called the Great Bible because it's large size. I didn't bring this stuff with me, but I'll try to next time. If I remember, I've got pages for most of these Bibles. The Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible. I got all this stuff. I got a facsimile copy of the Gutenberg Bible. It's in two volumes, exactly the way it looked like. It's not the real thing, but it's basically the same thing. I want to bring some of that stuff and show you because it's really interesting to me anyway, since we're talking about it. But it's the Great Bible here. And they chained this Bible to the churches so people couldn't take them home to the pulpits. The fifth one was the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible. The New Testament, 1557. The Old Testament, 1560. This was the most popular Bible that was out when the King James was translated. And then the sixth one was the Bishop's Bible. It came out in 1568. Got a copy, page of that. And um, there's a lot of bishops involved. It's the first Bible to be translated by a committee. And so it's actually a revision of the Great Bible and is undertaken by Matthew Parker, the Bishop of Canterbury. And he had a whole bunch of bishops with him is what he had. And so there that was. They had that one. And so those are the Bibles. Six of them. God's Word's purified seven times. I bet you can guess what the seventh one is. We'll talk about it here in a few minutes. We take, let's take a break. This, uh, this, my, this is a fun part right here for me. So I like talking about the King James portion of this lesson. So let's go to Lord in prayer and we'll start. Lord, we're glad to be back tonight. Thank you for the many blessings you've given us. Thank you for this church and our pastor. Please bless him and his family. And Lord, bless this church and all the uh, Bible believers that are here tonight. Bless them and their families, Lord, and take care of them. We're thankful for the King James Bible. And I do pray for your help tonight. And May you help me remember those things that I've studied and help me say the things you'd have me to say. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The seventh Bible in the lineage that we've been talking about this evening is the authorized King James Bible of 1611. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth purified seven times. 
And I believe it's been seven in languages and seven in Bibles. Seven in Bibles. As a matter of fact, you don't need an eighth one or a ninth one or a tenth one. We can stop at seven and everything's perfect, everything's complete, just the way God would have it. And so what happened was back in six, the year 1604, in Hampton Court, just outside of London, in Hampton Court, it's still standing, it's a thousand-room building, and I'd like to go over there one of these days so and see all that. I think it'd be great. But there's a guy named Dr. John Reynolds. He came before the king because they was having this conference, and he requested that there be a new translation of the Bible without note or without comment. See, the Geneva Bible was really popular during that time, and it had marginal notes, and the kings deemed those offensive. He didn't like the notes they had in them. Some of them were against him. And so the Geneva Bible translators, you know, they were on him. You know, they were bashful uh, in their dislike of the Church of England and the throne and all that. And so, anyway, it was translated before King James was even born, but it made no difference. He didn't like it. And even Tyndale had many marginal notes in his. And so the king said, okay, he authorized it. And they commissioned 54 of the most learned, greatest scholars that's ever lived in the world to produce this new Bible. Of these 54 scholars, four were college presidents, six were bishops, five were university deans, 30 held PhDs. And back then, it meant something to get a PhD. I mean, anybody can get one now. Not back then, you couldn't. You had to, they had to, I mean, they were smart. 39 had Master of Arts degrees. 41 were university professors. 13 were highly trained Hebrew scholars. 10 were highly trained Greek scholars. Three were Eastern linguists who were as fluent in Arabic as they were in English. All 54 men believed in the plenary verbal inspiration of the scriptures, and all 54 men believed in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. All 54 men were men of prayer. And these men averaged 60 years of age and 40 years of Greek and Hebrew study apiece. You know, these guys now, they go to Bible college for four years, and they have four years of Greek and two years of Hebrew or something, and they're scholars, you know. They know everything. These guys were way beyond that. And they also worked gratuitously, free, not for one penny. That's amazing, isn't it? These men set aside three years of their life for prayer and fasting in preparation for the translation of the work. As a matter of fact, from 1604 to 1607, they didn't do anything but pray and fast during that time. I'm sure they ate sometime in the three years, but, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but they spent time praying and fasting before they got started on it. And then in 1607, the work began. Only 47 men remained. Some of them died in those three years. Some of them had to not do it for other reasons, whatever reason that was, and had to, you know, bad health and other things, so they were excused. But there were 47 men. The translators were divided into three companies, Westminster, Cambridge, and Oxford. There were 17 at Westminster, 15 at Cambridge, 15 at Oxford. Matter of fact, at Westminster, the dean of Westminster was Lancelot Andrews. He held up West. He he start, he was the main guy there to oversee it. In Cambridge, you had Edward Lively. He was the professor of Hebrew at Cambridge. 
And at Oxford, you had John Harding. He was the resident professor of Hebrew at Oxford. And in the, each of these three places, they divided each of these three places into two companies. And so they all had different portions. So you had six groups, two in each of the three places. And they all had uh, different portions to translate. And it's pretty amazing because when they would translate it, when they got finished, the other companies would be able to look over their work and, and, and if they saw anything that they didn't agree with, they sent it back to them to review and vice versa. At the very end, they had a general assembly and they brought any problems there that they couldn't come, get along with, you know, or decide on together. At the general assembly, at the very end, then they went over that and made sure everybody was in agreement there. The first printing was completed exactly seven years after the work began in 1611. Seven years. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Don't you worry about that. If, hey, if that's the worst thing that happens tonight, I don't get on to nobody about a phone because mine will go off next. So don't you worry about that. That's, you didn't bother nothing. Huh? No. Nah. You should have seen it when the guy stomped out on me about two weeks ago. You would have seen where it was at. <laughs> He's a little light in the loafers. When a preacher can't preach against a man in a dress, you got big problems. And I said, if everybody else don't like it, there's a door there, 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 and there. Help yourself. Amen. And if you're a man wearing a dress, you have mental health disorders. It may be worse. So, so anyway... You sure don't need to. <laughs> the first printing. The first printing was exactly seven years after the work began in 1611. Hey, by the way, I just learned this. The manuscript that they took to the printers, the, start, the very first manuscript that got printed, you ever thought about what might have happened to that? I mean, it's pretty amazing. They translate all this, and they had all these written manuscripts, and they had to take it to the printer, and the printer used that to actually print off of. It got destroyed in the Great Fire in London. You know what year it got destroyed? 1666. 1666. That's crazy, ain't it? I thought, wow. I just thought that was neat. But anyway, just read that. When back during we had that snow, I was doing a bunch of research on this stuff, and I found that. The King James Bible is the seventh major English translation of the Bible. So you got seven again. God's number for completion and perfection. It's been said the first six translations were like a diamond in the rough, but the King James is polished, refined, and purified. It's like God brought it through a process until he got to the ultimate goal, the King James Bible. Many King James Bibles in the old days they used to call them the seven-sealed book because they would have seals on the outside, seven of them. It's pretty neat. Many times, if they didn't have it there, you'd open up on the front cover, they'd have a picture of a seven-sealed Bible. They call it the seven-sealed book. That seven's a great number. We learn all this about preservation in Psalms chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. Incidentally, even today, we use the seventh edition, not revision. We'll talk about that in a future lesson but we use the seventh edition of the king james bible it's still a 1611 but we use the seventh edition that's pretty amazing and then something else 
you got the number nine associated with the King James Bible. Nine is the number of fruitfulness in Scripture. Did you ever read about Genesis chapter 9 when God told Noah to be fruitful and multiply and replenish, replenish the earth? There's nine fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says. Abraham was 90 and 9 when he found out his wife was having another baby, or first baby, rather, having a little baby boy. 90 and 9. I'm telling you, that's something. And she was no spring chicken either. She was 89. <laughs> he was 100 when the baby was born. She was 90. You say, oh, that's not possible. I believe it. The Bible says it happened. <laughs> you take uh, Holy Bible. I realize this is just for fun, but H-O-L-Y-B-I-B-L-E. That's nine. King James, K-I-N-G-J-A-M-E-S. Nine. Sixteen, eleven. One plus six plus one plus one is nine. The King James Bible is the most fruitful Bible there's ever been. Did you know that this book sold over a billion copies before 1960? Do you know what the best-selling book of all time is? I'm holding it in my hand. It's a 1611 King James Bible. Why don't they teach that in literature at college campuses? How could you even call yourself a literature teacher and not teach the best-selling book of all time? That doesn't even make sense to me. It's a fruitful book. It's the best-seller of all time. I mean, all time. I'll show you something else neat about it. Turn to Psalms 103. A lot of neat things here. Psalms 103. If you were going to look for the middle of your Bible, Psalms is the middle. But specifically, Psalms 103. There's 31,102 verses in the King James Bible. Not in the NIV, they take out 17. Not in the ESV, they take out 17. But in your King James Bible, there's 31,102 verses. If you want to find out where the middle is, it's Psalms 103, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at them. I can hear Brother Dorsey quoting this verse of <laughs> their church every time they close. You know, he's a good one, too. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You got 28 words in those two verses. And if you get it down in the middle, there's four middle words. And it's the end of verse number one. Bless his holy name. That's the middle of your King James Bible. And so those translators, forget the translators. They didn't even know it was there. All they did is what God told them to do. God knew it was there. God knows everything about it. You know what this book tells you? It tells you to bless his holy name. We're going to do a little Bible study. Turn to Nehemiah while we're at it. Just a little Bible study. It's good for us. That's the middle of your Bible. Nehemiah chapter 9. I want you to see this. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, a great chapter in the Bible. I've got a couple messages over here in this chapter. Nehemiah chapter number 9. In one of them, I'll show you the text I used. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 4. Nehemiah 9, 4. What's the first word? Then, some of you's there. Nehemiah 9, 4. Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua and Bani, Cadmiel. That sounds like an Easter egg bunny. Like, that's what you'd eat. Shebaniah, Buni, 
Cherubiah, Bani, and Kenai, and cried with a loud voice on the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, and Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabani, Sherebiah, Hadijah, Shabani, and Pethathai said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. I got a message called, You Can't Praise Him Too Much. It's not possible. You say, how do you know? He just said his name is exalted above all blessing and praise. He told you over there in Psalm 103 to bless his holy name. And his name is exalted above all blessing and praise. Say, well, they just get too carried away when they're praising the Lord over there. How is that even possible? That's impossible to do. Man, uh, we can't get carried away enough is what that means. That's what that tells me. I got another place I want you to turn to. Turn to Psalm, or not Psalms, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. He's exalted his name above all blessing and praise, but he tells you what that name is that's exalted. Philippians chapter number 2. I just finished teaching Philippians Tuesday night in our school. I taught the final two lessons Tuesday night. It's just a great book in the Bible. In Philippians chapter number 2, in verse number 9, look what it says. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. That's pretty plain. That the name of Jesus, he tells you what that name is. Every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you say, what are you saying? What I'm saying is the Bible says the Father gave the Son a name that's exalted above any other name. Apparently, any name. You say, well, we ought to go by Jehovah. No, I go by Jesus. I'm all right. I'm not against Jehovah, but I like the name Jesus. It's exalted above every other name. It's exalted above Muhammad, too, and Lucifer, and Satan, and Barak, amen, <laughs> all of them. The name of Jesus, the Bible says. What a name that is, the Scripture talks about. Bless his holy name. The Bible says his name's exalted above all blessing and praise, and then it tells you what his name is. That's the greatest name there's ever been. And that's not a cuss word either. I'll be honest with you. I don't cuss. I don't, I'm not perfect. I don't claim to be perfect. I don't even cuss on the side. I mean, if I'm out, whatever. That's just ain't my thing. But if I was going to, I'd leave that one alone. <laughs> I, I guarantee you I could find a better one than that. I'd leave that one alone. I'm not using God's name in vain. Mm -mm. All right. Turn back to Psalms 138. You say, where are we on this? What are we on a racing around all over all over the place? Hey, that's how you learn your Bibles comparing scripture with scripture. The Bible's the best commentary on the Bible. I'm not against commentaries, I like them. But you won't find a better one than the Bible. Psalm 138. I'm going somewhere with this. Psalm 138, verse number two. We can all agree Jesus is the greatest name there's ever been given. We can all agree that it's the it's exalted and it ought to be praised. I think we can all agree with that tonight. Well, Psalm 138, verse number 2, he says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. 
His name's exalted above any other name. But yet this is magnified and it's higher than the name of Jesus. You say, why is that? Because a man's no better than his word. If his word wasn't true, his name wouldn't be any good. A man's not any better than his word. You ought to be able to shake hands and make a deal with somebody and follow through with what you're doing. But now you've got to kill 10,000 trees and initial here, sign there, initial here, sign there. I mean, it's craziness. You just didn't have to do that because people meant something when they said something. Their word was good. Their word's not good anymore. But I'll tell you somebody's that is. The Lord's word's still good. And I promise you, his name's good because his word's good. I don't worship the Bible, but I do worship the one that wrote the Bible. I'm all about worshiping him. And I do reverence the Bible, by the way, because I realize this is not man's book. Man didn't write this book. God did. There's no way man could have done what's in here. You take that Psalms 103. It's wild. I mean, it's just craziness. I told you Psalms 103 was the middle of your Bible. And a lot of people agree with it. If you really figured that, if you did the math, I think you'd see that. But did you know from Psalms 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of Psalms 102, you'll never believe how many verses are between Psalms 101 to the end of Psalms 102, right before Psalms 103. 1,611. You say, no, it's not. I've, I've added them 20 times. It's 1,611. It's that's a coincidence. Call it whatever you want to. I think God's got his hand on this book is what I think. This book ain't like other books. I mean, it's something else. As a matter of fact, it's the most read book. Of people that read the Bible, the last Gallup poll they had, 55% of, of people in America that read the Bible read a King James. 19% read the non-inspired, the NIV. And 11%, or there's like three or four tied, 11%. People that are serious about it, they got a King James. That's what they have. Did you know Psalms 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible? 176 verses. 172 of the 176 mention God's word. They either call it his word, his statutes, his law, his commandments, whatever. It's referencing his word. I mean, the longest chapter in the entire Bible is about this book, God's word. 176 verses. Do you know what 176 is? I'll tell you what it is. It's 16 times 11. That's what it is. Figure it up. Get your phone calculator. It's 16 times 11. Try me out. See if I'm telling you the truth. Turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. This stuff's crazy how it's in here. You say, well, this is just silliness what you're doing. It may be, but I like this book. <laughs> I love this book. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. How many verses you got in Psalm 16? 11. That's what I got. 16, 11? Got to be kidding me. What's the first word of Psalm 16? Preserve. What's the last two words of Psalm 16? Preserve forevermore. 16, 11. That's good stuff right there. You say, well, you're smart. I ain't smart. I was doing a Bible conference, and I had a guy that's not even a preacher. He came up to me, he said, I was giving a bunch of this stuff, you know, thought I was something. He came up to me and said, I guess you know about, he didn't even teach Sunday school, nothing. He said, I guess you know about Psalm 16, don't you? 
And I could have said, of course I know about Simon. I said, no, I didn't know, and I wanted to know. <laughs> and I said, no, what about it? You tell me, and I'll know. He said, well, look at it. There's 11 verses. And then he said, what's the first word? And I said, preserve. He said, what's the last two words? I said, preserve. I said, I know now. <laughs> I've talked to a bunch of guys. Not, there's not many that do what I do. I'm not saying that I'm in body, but there are some that go around teaching on the King James, the subject of the King James Bible. Brother James talked about a guy when he was young and, and a teenager and stuff that did it, but you don't, there's just not very many, but uh, the Lord's allowed me for whatever reason. I get to go all over the country. I've been out of the country teaching on it. And thank God for it. And every time I've asked, I said, do you know about Psalm 16? They go, nope. No, no, no. You say, who found out about it? Oh, just a little old guy that reads his Bible and don't even teach Sunday school, just believes the book. Or the... Let me tell you something. You don't have to have a preacher to know everything. Get in that Bible and read it yourself. God will show you something. Man, God shows men stuff, women stuff. We got women in our Bible that know more than a lot of Bible college teachers. You say, what's the difference in them? They believe the book and those Bible college teachers don't. And I promise you, they know what they're talking about, those women. <laughs> they do. Thank God for them, too. Amen. You say, well, you shouldn't say that about women. Well, a lot of people think preachers know everything. They don't know everything. We, know, we got kids that know a lot of stuff. Not downgrading anybody. I'm just saying, you get in that book and study it, God show you something. He'll show you something. Isaiah in the Bible, they call that the miniature Bible. Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. 66 chapters. There's 66 books in your Bible. As a matter of fact, Isaiah is known to have two major sections. Chapters 1 through 39 chapters 40 through 66 your bible's got two major sections i'm a dispensationalist you say you are sure i believe in the old testament and the new testament that makes me one right there i believe there was a law and i don't believe i'm under it i'm under grace that makes me a dispensationalist okay that's easy enough right there and let me just tell you when i look at that old testament and you look at that isaiah 1 through 39 a lot of people think when it begins in chapter 40, there's a different guy wrote it. They call him Deutero-Isaiah. They don't think it's the same a second Isaiah. They don't believe it's the same author because it changes. That's how your Bible does. You got 39 Old Testament books, and then you got 27 New Testament books. The 39th is Malachi. The 40th is Matthew. Did you know in Isaiah chapter number 40, in verse number 3, there's a guy named John the Baptist comes on the scene before, 700 years before he's even born, it tells about him. Did you know in Matthew, the 40th book, chapter 3, they introduced to us John the Baptist. Man, God's all over this book. In Isaiah chapter number 1, it says, Hear, O heavens, and hear, O earth. In Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. In Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation, the very end, chapter 21, he saw a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says. You can't make this stuff up. Man, God's all over this book. All over it. It's just amazing to me. You know what the King James translator said in the preface of the 1611 King James Bible, when they put it out, here's what they said. Truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should make a new translation, but to make out of many good ones one principal good one, not justly to be accepted against, that hath been our endeavor, that our mark. They hit it. They hit their mark is what they did. 
those translators. They said, we only need one good one. And for 300 years, it was the only English Bible that anybody used. Don't tell me God didn't have his hand up. They were putting them out every two or five years until the King James came in and all of a sudden, you don't need them anymore. I wonder why, how come. God's had his hand on this book. That's just been a little over 400 years ago. You know, for, and you look back, and we were talking about this in between classes. They call, they call that in between the Testaments, Malachi and Matthew, the 400 silent years. We were talking about that where God didn't say anything. What they were saying is he didn't write any more books. He didn't have the prophets write a book or anything. And what happened was God opened it back up again at the first coming of Christ. Well, here we are. God stopped in 1611, gave us a book in English. There's not been another language pop up. English is still that language. It's been 400 years. Well, you say, what are you saying? I'm looking for Christ the second time. I don't know when he's coming. I'm not marking that. I'm not saying, but I do believe it soon. I believe he could come back today. I really believe that. I don't know that he will, but I believe he could. I believe things are getting ready. That's for sure. Getting ready. Let me give you a, one more thing. I'm done tonight. Really, this is, just want to give you stuff on the King James, some neat stuff about it. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to run a, we're going to look at three scriptures. Three references, actually. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, when I come back, I'm going to bring some of those fake Bibles. Your pastor's permission. I'm going to bring some of those fake Bibles, and we're going to look at a lot of these differences. We're going to have a time, too. So grab 2 Corinthians 2, and go ahead and get 1 Corinthians 2 while you're at it. Get both of these. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look what Paul says down in verse 17. He says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Even in Paul's day they were corrupted. The word corrupt means to change, to change from a sound to a putrid or futuristic state to change from good to bad that's what they were doing for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God there's more of them corrupting it than them that was not corrupting it but as of sincerity but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ you know all the new Bibles change that where it says corrupt the word of God to peddling the word of God to peddle means to sell or retail which is exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. It's changing the NIV, the ESV, the New American Standard, and the New Jimmy version, the New King James. All of them change it. They want to get rid of the word corrupt because it bothered them probably, condemned them, exactly what they're doing. Not as many. There's a whole bunch of them. So take your Bible and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is of him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. If you got the Spirit of God, then you can know some things. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely, freely, freely given to us of God. The King James Bible is the only Bible that doesn't have a copyright on it. It's free. So it's free. I had to pay for it. No, you paid for the printing fees. You paid for the leather cover. You paid for the commentary in your Schofield or your whatever you like, whatever it is, makes no difference. You paid for their notes. But you didn't pay for the text because nobody owns it. Had the crown copyright. So they, nobody can own it. But the New King James, Thomas Nelson owns it. And the NIV, Zondervan owns that. And the ESV, Good News Publishing owns that. They own the text. And you can't print it without their permission. And if you print the whole thing, you're going to pay them. You say, well, there's down there at that Southern Baptist. Yeah, they own their own too. They own their own. You know that it's kind of like an endorsement deal. It's what it gets down to. Brother Tony Hudson his dad, Dr. Curtis Hudson, they offered him $10,000 to endorse the New King James Bible. $10,000 in 1980. And he went to, he didn't even know what it was. and he, That wasn't what he did anyway. And he went down there to that meeting and his overview meeting or some kind. And he saw it and he said, I don't know, this is not for me, no thanks. That's all he went to. And he left. And two years later, they put out the New King James, and they put his name in the front with all these different people. And he wrote on, had to write on three times. And he told them, take name out of that. I don't have anything to do with it. He sent them the check back. They sent him. He wouldn't even cash it. He said, I'm not taking this money. I don't want any part of it. And he had to threaten them the third time. I got copies of the letter. Matter of fact, I obtained them and sold them Brother Tony. And it was pretty wild. And I got copies. He said, I don't want my name on it. Dr. David Otis Fuller, he wrote, which Bible? They offered him more than that. Which Bible? He was a King James man. David Otis Fuller had the best-selling book, which Bible, to market, and they wanted him to endorse it. I mean, that'd be like Hank Jr. endorsing a guitar, you know, or Tiger Woods endorsing a, oh, I like Hank Jr. better. <laughs> but anyway, Tiger Woods endorsing a golf club or something, you know. I mean, get these... And Curtis Hudson, whether you like it or not, he was really a celebrity during that time. I mean, he was so well-known because of what the thing he was in, but he wouldn't do it. I appreciate that. I do appreciate that. And, and David O'Sport said, no thanks. He was on the board of Wheaton College with Billy Graham. He resigned. He said, you are too liberal for me. I like that. Sorry. That's a man right there. He was a, he was a gentleman, though. He was really nice. He wouldn't be part of it. I believe God wanted us to have his word freely. I don't believe we ought to be making money off of his book like that. Take your Bible one more place. We're done. First Corinthians or First Timothy. To go right along with this. First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. This is changed in all new Bibles. Verse ten. For the love of money is the root of all evil. That's your problem right there. And the devil's figured out how to get people to put Bibles out. And one reason is they want that money. They want that money. I understand the Bible talks about paying a preacher and they that preach the gospel to live the gospel. And I understand that. And that's right. 
But when you start trying to sacrifice something so you can get rich, you're wrong. That's the difference right there now. That's wrong. But they change it for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. That's not what it says. It says for the love of money is the root of all evil. You say, well, I know a guy that's got a lot of money. It didn't say he had a lot of money. It says the love of money. You can be broke and love money. All these get-rich-quick schemes, all that stuff. The love of money. There's people that's multi, multi, multi-millionaires, and they don't love money. But, man, they're, they're supporting missionaries and tithing their church. And thank God bless them. I, pay, I hope he gives them more because they're using it for the right reasons, you know. That's how we ought to be. So we're not, I mean, you might be anyway. Amen. I'm not even a thousandaire at certain times of the year. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Thank God for it. I thank God for this Bible, rather. That's what they've done. They've gone against this book. Gone against the book. All right, I think that's what I wanted to give you. This is the preserved word of God. It's a King James 1611 Bible. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Amen. Anything before we dismiss? I don't mind at all. We'll see what I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to talk about those additions coming up. <laughs> I'll tell you that, that's an easy one from his mother-in-law. <laughs> Simple. Yeah. I can answer any question in three words. I don't know. Any question. You throw it at me. I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just, a, I've heard that too. <laughs> We're going we're gonna to look at, um, if it's all right, we're going to look at the different editions, so-called revisions. We're going to compare Bibles. I've got, I've got a worksheet that's got 10 things on it. And if you know this worksheet, you'll be able to handle the average preacher anywhere in America that tries to get you on this stuff. Okay. I can. I've got some stuff on that. If you want me to, because I. Yeah. I teach on that in school. I'll bring something on that. Yeah. Well, and all the new Bibles are they're they're thought for thought translations. It's not word for word where the King James is, and so the NIV translators, which it just so happens. Eight of them also helped on the New King James translation. That's pretty wild. And these NIV translators, what they did is they said they took it thought for thought. So they took the words up there, like John one one, and you know, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they took those different things, and they just took. They said, okay, this is what this verse means, so we'll put it down. The King James said, no, we'll look at in the beginning was the Word, Logos. And I mean, they took logos, they took logos means word, so if it were, I mean, every, every one of those Greek words, like a Greek word for and, is kai, K-A-I, you know, uh-uh. And I said, the Greek word for that, here's the English Greek word, and then they got done, I said, now let's see what it says. That's being honest. The other said, let's see what it says, and then we'll translate it the way we want it, thought for thought. That's not honest. And see, they, that took their hands off of it, is what it did, and that's one reason that's preserved the way it is. God kept it exactly like he wants it. But they, that text is, of course, it came from the right text, too, which helped a whole lot. <laughs> Get the wrong text. But you to even take that, God used that Textus Receptus, which I'm not going to cover a lot on, 
And you, a lot of these people are what you call TR people or Texas receptive, and they go back to that. They say, we believe that's uh, the Word of God, not the King James. Well, I don't believe that. That Texas receptive had as many as five different renderings on every passage, and those King James translators had to decide which one they were going to take. That's pretty wild. You got Beza and Elzebra brothers and Stephanus and all these different, and Erasmus, all these different people that had manuscripts that make up the Texas receptive, and they all did the same thing, and they had to decide which one they was going to take. God just had his hand on it. Is all there could. It wasn't the translators, by the way. It was God that did it. They could, they, there's no way they could have done it. As smart as they were. The Apocrypha? Well, they're real books, and they, the Apocrypha books are non-canonical. In other words, non-inspired books that were written in between Malachi and Matthew. And since God stopped speaking, they wanted to help God out. So God's not giving us any more books, so some men got together and wrote books. But they're just non-inspired. And so even the original... When the King James came out, they put it in the King James Bible in between the Old and New Testament only for recommended reading, but for historical books, but not as part of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, even in their headings in the King James Bible, in any book, it'll tell you what the book is, what the subject is, but in the Apocrypha, it just says Apocrypha, Apocrypha. It don't even say the same. I've got copies of all that stuff, but anyway, it doesn't say the same thing. But at the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, they said that the Apocrypha is part of God's Word. And they said anybody that doesn't believe it, let them be anathema. Let them die and burn to hell. Burn to hell is what they said. I mean, I was like, wow, if you don't believe that? Oh, yeah. And there's, they contradict themselves. I mean, crazy stuff. You, you, you can use different garlic and things and run the devil off. And I mean, just, you know, you know craziness. I'm going to talk about those editions next, probably next time. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And so, and we call them editions, not revisions, because it's not been revised. But I'll show all that. It's it's pretty good stuff. There's a bunch of those books that people. There's a book of Barnabas. There's a book, yeah, Thomas, book of Stephen, all that stuff. They were just written by men, and most of them were written after all these people were dead, the first, second century there, and they tried to resurrect this stuff. And so, and, and it's, but the thing is, in the first century A.D., all, everybody agreed that these 66 books we use are what they call the canon, meaning inspired. And so one thing they knew that they had, like in the New Testament, if an, did an apostle write it, all kinds of different ways that they decided these are the Word of God. And they were accepted just early on within the first century, and it's never changed. And so these 66 books have always been there. And God, he's promised to preserve his Word, so we have to trust that he did. But those books are no good. Yep.
me off. What you do is you don't pay attention to it. That's a man putting notes in there. And so this is a Schofield Bible. I'm not even that big on Schofield. You know, I just like the layout. I've used it for 20-something years. I, it's kind of hard to change your layout once you do something like that. I don't agree with half of the stuff he says in it. And so, but I agree with the Bible. Yeah, it's commentary. That's it. Thompson China, it's a pretty good one, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it is. Anybody else? And I'll be back, we'll be back in about a month. Is that right? Yeah, yeah thank y'all for having me. So. Yeah, glad to get to come. And I appreciate, hey, y'all are easy to talk to, too. They pay attention. That's great. Oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, yeah, they're good.